Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending December 10. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's show, I say goodbye. Uh, this is my last ever year as a Breakfaster and uh, I have a bit of a cry breaking that news. Of course, please join us for my last ever show at the Corner Hotel on December 17th. Uh, we also get into the ins and outs of kissing on the mouth. <laughs> Fee Wright does another book review this week talking about the Fran Lieberwitz reader and says a lovely goodbye to Smithy at the end there. Jess Hill discusses her quarterly essay, The Reckoning, How Hashtag Me Too is Changing Australia. And I ordered some drinks over the weekend. Didn't get what I asked for, but the bar staff and baristas just faked it till they made it. Jagged Little Pill, the musical, is coming to Melbourne. We talk to producer Arvind Ethan David. Uh, we discuss getting roped into audience participation. And our Friday funny bugger this week was Irvi Majumda. Melbourne's own Triple R. All right, 7.45. It's been flagged and there's no backing out now. There's an <clears> announcement <throat> to make. Oh, yes, there is. So, um, oh, I don't know how to do this. This feels really full on. Um, uh, so, yes, I have a little announcement to make. I, after um, six wonderful years as a breakfast, I've decided this is going to be my last year um, after... I feel like I've done this before because I got pregnant and kind of announced it temporarily and then came back. And, um, yeah, so I'm going to be finishing up at the end of this year. Uh, I have had the greatest time coming back and doing this show, uh, kind of going away and um, having a barb and then coming back and being so fully supported by this station and by you guys has been a total joy. And I just love this job so much. Um, it may just be the best job in the world. Mm. And um, I feel like I'm an idiot for leaving. I almost could do it forever. And sometimes I think maybe I should just be a breakfaster forever, but I don't know that anyone would, uh, anyone probably needs that in their life. But I, um, yeah, I've just had a total, uh, like, a. it's just been the greatest six months coming back and doing this job. And um, this decision hasn't been made lightly by any means. But as you may have realised, there's been a, pandemic on and um the last two years has been really big for everyone in 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 melbourne in the world and uh during that time you know andrew and i had a baby and we uh missed our family who all lived down the beach and um we decided that it was time to have or we've decided it's time to have a bit of an adventure so we're moving down the coast to the um to the peninsula, to the Bellarine Peninsula, and to be closer to family and to hang out so Junie can run on the beach and so that we don't have to um, ever be cut off from family again who yeah. live down there. Uh, and also just to have a big change in our lives. Like I think a lot of people in the world are feeling that at the moment. And um, uh, like, you know, like I said, I love this station so much and it's been such a goddamn joy being back here um, and h- hanging out with you guys and hanging out with the community again and being a part of it. But um Probably should just give someone else a go, I guess, at this job as well. It'd be nice to step aside. I can't stick around forever and like hog the hog the seat. So I mean, um, you can. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, yeah. It's, and like I said, it hasn't been a decision we made lightly. Like there's so many things that um, made me kind of get to this point. But um, yeah, it's just been a big year, and I feel like this is the right time to have a big change in our lives mm-hmm. and I have no idea what's going to happen next but I'm kind of excited about that adventure yeah, uh, yeah I guess well I'm still in denial I know, I know. we're I pretending know. this isn't happening <laughs> I know I don't even really know how to um 
yeah, I don't even really know how to say it, I, I guess. It's like I feel like I've shared so much of my life with the Triple R audience, so I don't really know what my world is without talking to everyone every day and telling them everything. But uh, it's been a really emotional year, like from kind of giving being pregnant at the start of pandemic and then having June and then coming out of the pandemic and starting the show again. And, um, you know, we've had highs and lows in our lives. Like we don't talk about this stuff on air a lot too, but um, uh, we lost Andrew's dad in the middle of this year quite suddenly and unexpectedly. And that was a really big moment for us as a family. And um, that's probably played a part in making this decision too. Mm. Um, and you've got new adventures, which are going to be exciting yeah. for you. I mean, the texts are coming through already. Everyone's, you, you know, of course, everyone loves you and and what you bring to the show, and and you're going to be you're going to be missed and and you're loved. But I'm, I'm sure you know the next adventure for you is going to be great as well. Yeah, I mean, you're you've been basically my best friend every day. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I've I've only had the pleasure of working with you, you know, coming up to six months, but it's been an absolute joy. And, and from the moment, uh, you know, we hadn't actually met before we went on air, but you took the time to, to call me and to text me and to meet up beforehand. And my first couple of months, you were always just checking in with me. And, you know, that's, you're just an amazing, wonderful, caring person. And I, and I can understand that everyone is absolutely going to miss you as we're talking now. As I said, the text messages are just coming through and I'm sure they will over the next couple of weeks and hopefully we can, you know, really embrace the next couple of weeks with you and, and yeah, Triple R community loves you. I love you. Like I said, <laughs> Thanks, I, only I feel like here. I'm like I've got to work with you for five months and I'm like, oh, I'll see you later. But it's been like, you know, it's been so bloody glorious coming back and being on air and having time yeah. away from the job makes you realise how gorgeous and special and wonderful this job is. Like there really is nothing like it in the world and, as I said, you could just do it forever when, yeah. once you start doing it. I remember Jess maybe saying a similar thing when she left. But um, it's also, you know, like I, I really believe in having adventures in life and kind of not knowing what's going to come next and and, and um, it's a really cool feeling for the first time in a long time as well. And, yeah, yeah I, sorry, I feel like I don't know how to – No, I don't, I, no. I, for the first time I don't have any bloody words. Yeah. <laughs> Friggin' no, irony I mean, of me it, it, not like, having I'm words. I'm biased, but I think this is the best show on radio and it's because of <laughs> you in large – in giant part. Like yeah. it's stimulating, it's exciting, it's vibrant, it's thoughtful. Um, you keep the whole ship running yeah. uh, and that's – you know, but to to contribute in the way you do, and to keep to make to keep my brain sort of excited and stimulated, <laughs> and all the music that you introduce us to, plus you know, you know we're paddling like a duck underwater, but you you can't see that up above the surface. You you keep the whole ship straight. You know, the news is always on time. You know, it's like a magic trick what you do every morning. Oh, it's it's unbelievable, and it, it's yeah, going to be sorely missed by everyone. It's been such a joy, and just so much fun to be able to call this work, to come in here, you know, have banter with you guys, and like you said, you know, there's been some things that have been happening that people haven't been aware of that, that are tough. But then you come in here and you do your job, and you make people smile every single day mm. uh, with your tunes, with your stories, uh, just with everything about you. So I know. Um, Who am I going to tell my cooked farm stories to? <laughs> I'm just going to be this weirdo walking around the beach going to people. Yeah, anyway, this one time my dad threw me in the dam. And, and then also I can't give cooked opinions about the elections next year. Yeah. Oh, you can. I'm just going to have to ring you guys up and we'll be like. We'll have to get you on a segment, I think. <laughs> one of the nutty texters, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but 
yeah, you're, you know, you're a legend, like of breakfasters. You've as good as it gets, oh, and so nice. we're very, very, we're blessed to have had you, uh, just as a punter, <laughs> and and, in, and as a colleague. But uh, you know, it makes sense that this chapter is coming. So you yeah. know, we love you and congratulations. Thank you, love you guys too. And um, we're going to have a send off. We'll talk yeah. about that. Yeah. We are, we are. Yeah. We're going to have a um. In two weeks, on next, not this Friday, following Friday, what is that, Friday the 17th, yeah. we're going to, yeah. um, at the Corner Hotel, rooftop, finally, after two years of not being able to do anything, we're going to have um, an outside broadcast so uh, people can come along and um, yeah. hang out and say goodbye if you feel like you want to say goodbye. No, no yeah. pressure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in the meantime, two weeks of uh, emo goodbyes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We had our uh, staff party last week and I had to refrain from hugging people when I when I was greeting them because that's just, I guess it comes natural for me. Um, if I see people, friends or whatever else to greet, to, to give them a hug. If I'm close friends, I'll, I'll even give them a kiss on the cheek kind of a thing. That's what I used to do. But I didn't kiss anyone, uh, but I still hugged a couple of people. Um, they hug me back as well. I think that's the awkward thing. If someone goes to hug you and you're kind of like, oh. If I saw them hesitate, then I wouldn't have gone through with it. Um, but it made me think, and, and this happens, hasn't happened for a while now, but I did have, I've actually got two friends that kiss when you greet them on the lips. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I like remember the, those two people kiss together or your two separate kiss, friends who kiss everyone on the lips Kiss me. people on the lips, ah. yes. So I remember one of my friends who I'm good friends with uh, and we were out once and uh, she was like, hey, we're like, hey. And, and I went to go in just to do a hug and a kiss and she kissed me on the lips and I acted cool at the time. I thought, oh, okay, maybe that was just an accident. We are just had a couple of drinks and whatever else. And she's straighty 180. Like there was nothing in it. It was just her. That's what she does, mm. I guess. Uh, and then I saw her do it to someone else. I was like, right, right. Okay, so you're a, a lip kisser. Um, and I have another friend in Adelaide who is the same. And I think at first I did it and then I was just like, no, I, I had to turn my head because mm. I just I just felt uncomfortable. But... I'm not sure if you've had that happen to you. People actually kiss. You know, I think if parents kissing their children, of course, you kiss them on the lips. I can still remember mum kissing me goodbye for school once, maybe going, gross, you got me on the lips. And she was like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> How old were you? Oh, I reckon I was primary school, so maybe kind of 10. Old enough to be self-conscious about it, like yeah. that I noticed that it was on the lips. But then, yeah. you know, lots of parents kiss their kids on the lips. It's oh, totally fine. Totally. But I remember being I really okay. like, gross mum. Like, yeah. You know, and she just was like, oh, come on. You're yeah, like child, Sarah. Like <laughs> something I, weird about it. Lipstick or can't remember. I don't think so. I just still. I was just like, Ugh. I was probably yeah. that age where it was all like kissy, kissy, and yeah, yeah. love the old lipstick, and then you pull the jumper, your school jumper. Oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, get it on your cheek or your lips. My nan would always go to, like she would grab our face with two hands, and you could hardly turn away uh, and she'd give us a big kiss on the lips but that was when we were children as well I think when we were older she probably still tried but majority of the people in my family like my brothers and that would turn away from the kiss on the lips I think from about 10 years old I've got a friend's dad I think it's this book I've eternally had an awkward goodbye situation with like forever he and I have never worked out like whether I'm (laughs) hugging or kissing him and every single time (laughs) I kiss him on the ear every. I kiss him on the ear. Yes, because 
He goes in for just a kiss. I go in for every single time. And it's got to the point where I have a panic attack every time I say goodbye to him. I can't kiss his ear one more time. But you're aiming for the cheek? I'm aiming for the cheek. But then sometimes sometimes I've been like, okay, I'm not going to do the kiss hug. Because I kiss hug. I kiss hug. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to. So I kiss hug everyone else. And it gets to him and I go go, go in for a hug. And mm. But then he's thought, oh, I'm just going to do just a kiss. So then we end up in this in between. It's it's like we're eternally in this loop from hell. Yeah. I suppose right. with a lot of things like this, it, there's a pleasure pain element. Like the ear feels too sensual. But also yes. my fear is that if the suction happens over the ear hole, oh, Jesus, oh, then wow. you're bursting an ear. That's genuinely I'm not kissing a thing. like a goddamn goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> I get some. It's not a. Like, I'm not going to kiss yeah. people. Like, ah, you know. I get stopped. <laughs> One of my uh, one of my best mates who are, is my maid of honour. We're very close and everything, but she's just not a hugger at all. Oh. So we've had a couple of moments in our life where um, I think she was moving away. She, she was going to be away for six months or something like that. Um, and she's like, all right. I'm like, okay, and we're both standing at the door. And then I went, I guess I'll see you later then. She's like, yep. Yeah. Okay, and and it was this awkward thing. It's like we know we should hug, but I just knew how uncomfortable she was going to be. So then she left. Uh, And, yeah, I never saw her again. No, I did. I saw her. Maybe maybe when the pandemic's over, just this person should bring back the elbow tap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, I've got a cold sore presently, and I don't say that. Do you? Oh, Oh, I'm so glad that you – this is gross as Sarah out. And but fair enough. Well, I'm not. I no don't judgment. Want to... No judgment. Well, whatever. there better not be. People I'm, in, can have I'm her... incredibly vulnerable yeah, right, right now. You have herpes simplex. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, because the cold sore's like. Herpes? <sighs> yeah. All right. Oh. And it's like, and it says like, you know, my body is riddled with herpes. This is the only one you can see. <laughs> Effectively, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to say it out loud. Yeah. Do you get cold sores? No. Mm-hmm. Yesterday I was walking around with a mask. Purely, you know, and people are like, "Isn't he conscientious outside? Scared of?" Oh, but really, it was the cover. Scared of the Omicron pandemic. Then did you lend that mask to Gabe so that he could inherit the? <laughs> well, herpes? that's the thing. I'm not allowed to go near affections off the table. Like I'm oh. basically a, you know, a statue here. And but so but now the... Gabe, Gabe, so now you're not allowed to kiss Gabe. So like he just thinks you're just being like mean dad. Oh, yeah, yeah, mean cold standoffish oh, dad. Just tapping your cheek on him. Yeah, you do yeah, that? yeah. That's right. And, you know, yeah, no kissing his ear for me. No. Um, but it's, it's you know, like you're, you hug? I do hug. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I hug most friends and family except for my sporting mates like footy and cricket. They're all not really affectionate, huggy people. If you kick a goal or get a wicket, everyone's hugging and loving each other sick. But if mm. you're in a social scene. Do you like the way Daniel just, just tried to get off herpes onto, do you hug? Just to get it right back to you. But, I was happy to change it. Well, the, no, the fact that I've got this herpy. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. No, the, Do you butt but tap? The fact that, Do you butt tap, yeah. Bobby? Are you, I'm going to get away from it again. Like, no. You know the... Okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, a hug and I... Yeah, but I, no, I don't think I do that. Do you that. ever whack someone on the ass so hard it was, like, too hard? Y- yeah, but not on the footy field. Just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. What a 
Barm this year. It's been to be joined regularly by educator, broadcaster and Triple R book brain, Fee Wright. Morning, Fee. Oh, gosh, good morning. I'm feeling very emotional. <laughs> Daniel, you just have to follow me around all day. <laughs> well, yeah, what a year, what a year. And thank you for, uh, for everything you've done, although we'll get to talk more about that. Uh, I've got a motion at the end. Yes. Fiona's got a motion at the end. But before I get to emotions, mm. uh, for my last review with Tune Lord, I wish I had prepared something more uh, fitting, but instead I have chosen probably the most cynical and acidically funny books I've ever read. Um, the Fran Leibowitz Reader, funnily enough, by Fran Leibowitz, out now by, um, by Vintage Books. And Vintage Books is an accurate publisher for this uh, because this book... I've actually written this down because I need to make sure I get it right. This book is a reprint of an earlier collection, which was a compilation of her previous two collections of essay. And many of those were pieces, so reprints from things previously published in Andy Warhol's interview magazine. So the book I'm reviewing today is a reprint of a reprint of a reprint. And I don't say that as a criticism. I say that as an observation because if you're unaware, Fran Leibowitz has had an approximate uh, 40-year-long writer's block. So she's made a living from being a funny talk show guest and going on speaking tours, and she's not promoting her work on speaking tours like a lot of other people do. She's just, like, speaking. Um, And then this year she worked with uh, Martin Scorsese and Netflix on that seven-part interview series, Pretend It's a City, and that was... Besides um, our fortnightly Hangouts team, that was basically the only thing I liked about lockdown, um, was this series because I became obsessed with it and I think I watched every episode on a single day and if you followed me on Instagram, you probably got sick of me sharing friendly memes. It was really funny and witty and it had amazing depth. And so I was thrilled when my friend Rach gave me this book because I'd been unable to find it around prior to the reprint. In fact, when I told um, the brilliant Elizabeth McCarthy, producer of this show, that I wanted to review this book, she told me that she picked it up like a decade ago in San Francisco. And I'm like, yeah, good for you, mate. The rest of us have been <laughs> for 10 years. I probably shouldn't slag off the producer. <laughs> no, what it's affectionate. Elizabeth is listening right now. We'll find out soon enough if I'm back next year. Um, anyway. So it's one of those books that you just kind of like had to really hunt around. And so I'm just thrilled that I finally got it in my hands. So the two previous books, which this is a compilation of, is Metropolitan Life from 1978 and Social Studies, which was published in 1981. And these were combined in 1994 to be the Fran Leibowitz reader. And the preface in my brand new edition has not been updated either. So it's quite all of the time of late 70s and early 80s writing. This isn't a bad thing per se, but it's important, I think, to really be aware of that because you need to be aware that this is a work from the time it was written. So some of the language and terminology has probably not necessarily aged well, um, but that's really my only criticism of the collection. And I also don't view that necessarily as a fair criticism. Um because some of the language was probably like highly progressive in 1978, but is just less so now due to the passage of time. Mm. So um, the essays themselves, just you just hear her voice so clearly through them. They are just, they're all separate entities. They're acidic and misanthropic and just so 
funny. And I told a friend, it's like reading a really long vintage issue of The New Yorker. And because it's like some of them are like listicles and fake surveys and jokes about drifting off mid-thought in conversation. And they're all these kind of little beautiful, silly asides that are just so sharp. Um, you know, some of the essays sort of hinted at death, but many were initially published, as I said earlier, in Andy Warhol's interview magazine. So she was writing for a specific audience, time and place. And all of these things mean I enjoyed the book and loved it. And it was his, like, it was strong and funny, but I just ache for new work from her. Like I just love the TV series and she has such beautiful, deep reflections in that series. I just felt so greedy because I loved this book, but I wanted more. So every essay here is this perfectly sparse and edited, like beautifully edited to within an inch of its life. So you get this sense of the scope of her perfectionist attitude and also why she hasn't published in like 40 years. But I just want more. So be warned, this book is great, but then you'll finish it and feel super sad because she's now 70 and the odds of her publishing anything new while she's alive are slim to none. And I can't imagine that she would necessarily consent to things being published after she's gone and she can't control the narrative. Mm. So do you get the impression that she'll get a new lease on life, maybe touring college campuses and being a hit with students, sort of like travelling Mark Twain? She talks about that a bit in her series, in the TV series, she talks about, she's like, why are you talking to me, young people? Like, <laughs> go talk to other young people. I couldn't imagine anything worse. Like, she's like, I, when I was 20, I didn't want to talk to any 70-year-olds. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, and it's like, um, it gives me that real, like, Larry David kind of sense of, um, sense of humour. Um, you know, for, like, I feel like this book and her lease on life, it's, Unlike Larry David, I don't, I can't see it. I just can't see her continuing to create. Right. Um, but I really want to emphasize, like, reading this slowly. Um, when I watch an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, for example, I love it, but I can't watch more than one at a time mm. because it's just like too much of a good thing. And with this book, I would read about 50 pages and then I would have to stop. Um, because once I knew, I, I, I knew that once I finished, there's no more. Mm. Um, but then also with this writing style, there is too much of a, a good thing. I don't know if, um, listeners have read Catch 22 because I loved that book, but I couldn't sit down and read it in big chunks either. Um, it needed time for jokes to like percolate in my brain. And actually this is kind of embarrassing. There was there's actually something that I only just got this morning that I read last week. There's this essay where she's like complaining LA about LA because she hates LA. And the punchline makes an offhand reference to calling LA collect. And I didn't, I just kind of was like, was ever calling LA collect. Didn't really get it. Um, not really processing it. And then I, this morning I was cleaning my teeth and I remembered landlines, interstate telephone rules and collect calls and started laughing hysterically because I finally worked it out. So that's a slow burn. Yeah. <laughs> slow burn. So I hope Triple R listeners are quicker than me. Um, but at this point in the year, after the Panny D, I just need some time to work things out. So. Well, isn't her decades-long writer's block a bit of an indictment on New York psychiatry? I mean, what's going on? Especially if you can hear her voice. If she's think, writing in her voice. It's a bit of a pop out. Oh, right. Okay. You okay. think she doesn't want to write? I think she doesn't want to write because now the pressure's too big. Uh, or too much uh, and too overwhelming 
And also, she loves books. That's apparent as one book lover to another. We we spot each other in the wild, you know. <laughs> um, and she's often said she wishes she could get paid for just reading. And she kind of has. Like, she's made a living. She goes and she talks on an interview show. And um, then she gets to go home to 11,000 books. And I <laughs> yeah. feel like, you know, she's a real role model. Like, who cares about publishing if you can do that with your life? And if she was contributing editor to, to Vanity Fair, I don't know for how long, maybe she still is, then that's what? What are you there? You're also... You're reading other people's stuff and yeah. saying, no, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and she's very good at that. <laughs> You know, know your strengths. Yeah. You know? And yet she's, yeah, she's a wonderful writer. I would just, you know, I would, t- if I would, if I knew her, I mean, she would never talk to me because I would be too far down the totem pole. But, you know, I would record her because I feel like that's the only way you'll ever get any new publishing from her is speech to text. That's the only way it's happening. Well, that's what, it, but, but if that's why I'm saying where if you can hear her voice, how hard can it be to mm. even, you know, A.A. Gill, I think, just... Oh yeah, was yeah it, with the with um the dictaphone or the dictaphone, yeah, or a yeah. stenographer. Uh, you know why doesn't she do that? Yeah. But if you say she's too iconic and threatened by her own reputation, I reckon that's part of it, and yeah. also probably like that's why she's been in like therapy. You know, like the whole New York psychiatry shtick. Yep. Yeah, I feel like that's probably paying into it as well. Like if you if you've made a reputation that oh no I've got a writer's block, and then people accept that. You know, if I could live saying, yeah, I've got a writer's I'm block. I'm a writer come... with a 40 years writer's yeah, block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 years writer's block, but then every two weeks I come on Breakfasters. <laughs> Sick. That's done. I'm done. That's it. That's my life. Yeah. Living the dream. Well, you're on track. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to circle back, yep. um, this book is great for presents for folks Um I feel like, especially if you have um, some older relatives in your life that may enjoy references to the 70s and 80s, this is very good. And it's also an excellent beach read. Um, and, and it's not that I'm speaking from personal experience here because I'm very responsible, but it's also great fun to read hungover. Hmm. And it just makes you feel funnier from having read it. Um, that might just be an internal sensation for me and not one that directly translates. To other people finding you funny, but I did feel funnier just by having having read it, wow. just basking in the presence of Fran. What a recommendation! Uh, it's the Fran Leibowitz Reader. What it's a reissue from the seventies and uh, the eighties, and then nineteen ninety four. But okay. the only thing she read in nineteen ninety four was like half a page. The preface. Don't get excited by the preface. Okay, <laughs> uh, Fee right. Thanks heaps. Thank you. But before I go, can I can I say something else? Yep. Um. So my last review of the year. Um, it has been such a pleasure all year between the five of you. I've got to include Jez and Mon. Um, it's been such a pleasure. It's, you guys have been my main social event, especially for the entirety of last year, because, um, whenever I wasn't on air, you just all gave me such a joy to wake up, um, wake up in the morning and Sarah, um, I'm very grumpy at you for leaving, but also like. Ocean Grove sick, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And it's not, I'm sure it's not hyperbole to say that many listeners feel very much like I do. So um, very happy for you to head down the coast, but very selfish about wanting you to stay. Yeah. So, but I'm very excited about the corner. 
Yes, yeah, everyone come to the corner. And Fee, thank you so much. It's such a delight working with you. I adore it. Just come visit me and bring you books, please. Thank you. (laughs) Bring me any books for you, mate. You're welcome anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Jess Hill is a writer, producer and presenter whose reporting on domestic abuse has won two Walkley Awards, an Amnesty International Award and three Our Watch Awards. Her 2020 Stella Prize winning book, See What You Made Me Do, was also awarded the Australian Booksellers Association Adult Non-Fiction Book of the Year and she's now published a new quarterly essay, The Reckoning, How Me Too is Changing Australia is out now and to tell us about it, the investigative journalist joins us now. Jess, welcome back to Breakfasters. G'day everybody, how are you going? Excellent. Um, what's the idea behind looking back to where we've come since from since Me Too first launched? Well, I think that often you can see these movements play out over a long period of time as isolated incidents. And I actually had a friend of mine say that when they were reading the quarterly, um, they realised that, that all these incidents that they'd seen, like, you know, from obviously everything that's happened this year, but then going back to Dyson Hayden, the former High Court judge who was, you know, who was investigated for sexual harassment, going back to 2017 and what happened around Me Too and the, and the enormous firestorm that came out of that, um, that it was all just a bit too much. And every time some, something else would, like, come onto the news he'd just be a bit like oh no and but reading the essay was sort of like oh the this was a snowball effect now i see how all these seemingly isolated incidents and events are connected and i think that's what i really wanted to do is not just even go back to the beginning of me too but go back to when did we first start to believe that well-regarded men in powerful positions would commit sexual violence and that trusted institutions would protect and enable them. Like, since when have we had the community understanding about that and how did that develop? Um, And how did we get to the point where after four years of Me Too, we actually are sort of in a position where people are giving women at least the benefit of the doubt and saying, we will at least listen to what you have to say and take you somewhat seriously. There's some commentary in the book about, you know, I worry that as soon as it's no longer the flavour of the month will backslide. Is there any, uh, where do you think we stand in terms of pre-Me Too versus post-Me Too or whether it is in danger of falling away? Mm. You know, uh, it's it's impossible to know, you know, because when, well, like when I was writing the book on um, domestic abuse, for example, like I gave myself a six-month timeline because I thought, oh, God, no one's going to want to read about this after six months because it won't be like the quote-unquote flavour of the month anymore. Um, but I took three and a half years to write it, and by the time I finished it, it still was of really, you know, um, sharp public interest. So there's something about this time which seems to be keeping the attention on gendered issues, even when we have, you know, a massive social disruption like COVID, for example. And now, obviously, COVID-19 becomes the focus. But interestingly, because there is this huge focus on gendered issues as well, the impacts on women, for example, um, are, are really highlighted as a result, as, as one of the key impacts of COVID. So I sort of feel like this gendered issue is not going away. And partly it's because... This time there's a community awareness about it that's, I think, different to the times before. 
and it goes beyond just, you know, the whole sort of battle of the sexes, uh, to put it crudely, um, but goes much more into the realms of power. And that is a perennial, you know, like the whole thing of what do we do with power? What does, um, how does power corrupt us? What, you know, how do we get our systems to the point where they are not institutions that will protect perpetrators? Um, And I think people are starting to grapple with the enormity of that project. And the fact is, as Michael Bradley, the, the lawyer who represented Kate Thornton, who made the rape allegations against Christian Porter, you know, as he says, this issue won't stop because sexual violence in our society is not just prevalent, it's endemic. There are survivors everywhere and they are becoming more brazen and they are becoming more willing to risk putting themselves out in public to get change. And that's and so there will never stop being people who are going to be, you know, members of this very public-facing resistance. In the essay, you kind of plot the high-profile cases that have punctuated the Me Too movement in this kind of modern era, in this, in this social media era. Do you get the sense that these high-profile cases have hindered or are hindering the movement ultimately, um, especially where sometimes they fail at, in, in law, like they actually, you know, they don't, we don't get the results that we would like to see? Or do mm. you think that they are help keeping the momentum um, for there to be more structural, meaningful change? Mm. Yeah, it's a little from column A and a little from column B, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, for example, when the Jeffrey Rush case, um, the defamation case against the Telegraph, uh, when he won that case, there was a lot of noise about the fact that this was like a huge failing of the Me Too movement. It showed that Me Too had basically failed to take off in Australia. And certainly it was a real chilling effect on, you know, outing powerful celebrity men um, in Australia. But, you know, I think Tarana Burke, who who first coined Me Too in 2007, when she came to Australia in 2018 and she was really, I guess, coming into the country while those conversations about our defamation laws and the fact that they'd scuppered the movement were still very live, her point the whole time was that, like, you know, your defamation laws are bad, you know, and, and you should change them. But that's that's not any reason for this movement to be halted. I mean, like this movement is about structural change. You don't need to have individual women outing individual men in order to change the systems that, you know, that perpetuate sexual violence. Um, And certainly, you know, I think we'd seen that with Rosie Batty, like two years earlier, becoming Australian of the Year. You didn't have domestic abuse survivors coming out in droves and naming their perpetrators. You came them coming out and naming the systems that were perpetuating the violence against them. And I think that was Tarana Burke's point. It's like, you know, point out the systems. Now, for me, I think the beautiful alchemy between Tarana Burke's movement, which is about healing and solidarity and systemic change, and the hashtag Me Too movement, which is really about accountability and and changing the narrative from not just I was raped, but he was the one who raped me and they were the ones who protected him. The the confluence between the two, it sort of gives it this supercharge because as you're saying, like those outing of the powerful predators like Dyson Hayden, the former high court judge, they are cultural touchstones to remind us that A, there is there, there should be no impunity for the powerful and that that is a movement that is on, um, but B, that this is 
through uh, the systems that we might least expect um, and that and that there needs to be, you know, really difficult work done within these systems to rid them of these powerful perpetrators. Um, so it sort of it brings it back down to the micro when you have those individual men highlighted, but you need the macro working at the same time so that we keep our eye on the main game, which is not individual perpetrators, it's the perpetrating the perpetration of the system, you know. What about the effect of Me Too on the awarding of damages for workplace sexual harassment? Yeah, well, that's... And it's a very unclear line as to what... I mean, basically, judges, when they're, when they're making decisions on how to award um, damages for something like a sexual harassment case, um, they are sort of obliged to take into account community expectations... Um, and so the community expectations around what the, the damage of sexual harassment um, have completely changed since Me Too because not only have we understood the harm of the incident, but we've started to understand the harm of the entire system that that person was operating in in the workplace, not just the perpetrator maybe, but the people who protected him, the, um, the colleagues who diminished what they were going through, the grooming process, you know, so this whole thing is now seen as a harm and as a very, very serious harm that can s- significantly reset the trajectory of someone's life. And interestingly, I mean, I was really looking at answering that question, which is, you know, what has Me Too done for women who are not high profile, um, upper middle class or celebrity, you know? Um, and there was a case um, a couple of years ago um, with Polita Golding, who was a worker in a um, in a laundromat, and she was horrifically both harassed and assaulted by um, her boss. And she initially, when she when she took the case to court, which is very unusual for it to actually reach court, the initial um, decision awarded her thirty five thousand dollars. That was about the the upper end of of what was awarded in Queensland um, at the time. And then at an appeal, the appeal judge upped that to $130,000 and it's believed to be a record-breaking award in Queensland. Mm. And there was, there was just the, the lawyer who represented Polita was, um, had come from England. She'd been working for years in gender equality work. And for her, she was like, this really does point to the impact of Me Too, that, some, that, that a woman working in a laundromat could get such significant damages in Queensland and that that, that Queensland judge would, would refer to precedents that would allow him to, to grant her those damages. So, but it's very difficult to know what exactly is that just one judge? When do you, when do you actually decide that this is a pattern? Mm. We could monopolise uh, your whole morning talking about your essay, but I wanted to touch on Kate Jenkins, the sex discrimination minister who you spoke to for the essay. It's interesting how undeterred she seems, given that uh, she handed her report to a different government from the one that commissioned it. Can you speak mm. about your impressions? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the sex discrimination commissioner, Kate Jenkins, um, when she was... Basic, she basically came up with this idea very much connected to Me Too because she was being asked about sexual harassment, but you know every every other day, um, and so she pitched it 
to the then Minister for Women, Kelly O'Dwyer, that we need to do this world-leading inquiry into what is happening in our workplaces and how to fix it. Um, but that was under Turnbull. Um, and Malcolm Turnbull, while leading a Conservative government, was a was a no like you know an out and out feminist and had been for decades. And then when she when Jenkins came to deliver that report, she was delivering it to the Morrison government, um, and she was delivering it to then Attorney General Christian Porter, who could not have been less interested, <laughs> it seemed, um, who basically shelved the report. Um, but the report. I mean, if you read that Respect at Work inquiry, it is chilling. And I say that as someone who has worked on domestic abuse and the worst types of violence for the last seven years. When I read that, my stomach was turning at the sorts of things that are going on in workplaces across Australia and, and the prevalence of it. Like in our industry, media, entertainment and arts, 83% of people are sexually harassed. 84% of men are sexually harassed. You know, we go off about Parliament, like, oh, a third of par- you know, people working in Parliament have been sexually harassed. We've got almost three times that figure in the media, you know. Um, and But what she was basically saying is you have to make, like you have to bring into legislation the requirement for employers to prevent sexual harassment, just like they have to prevent workplace injuries. Like we don't all get electric shocks at the computer when we turn them on because there are, like, there are laws against there being faulty equipment in workplaces. And the fact is, there's no, there's no other recourse for people experiencing sexual harassment other than make it complaint and see how you go. Um, and that's what's so revolutionary about Respect at Work is it's saying treat workplace sexual harassment like a safety and health issue, prevent it, make, and that means looking at your organisation. Is it male-dominated? Is it hierarchical? What, what are, is it, does it have those risk factors that make it prone to sexual harassment? Um, and Kate Jenkins has just continued, you know, really pushing. And even when Morrison and co have resisted the essential recommendations of that report, um, she's kept pushing and she's got her eye on the long game. If it's not this government, it'll be the next government. This will happen. And she's determined to revolutionise Australian workplaces and for me too to really mean something to the people who are working all across Australia. Well, Jess Hill's new quarterly essay, The Reckoning, How Me Too is Changing Australia, is out now via Black Ink. We've been fortunate to speak with investigative journalist Jess Hill. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for your time, Jess. Triple R. I went to order a couple of drinks on the weekend and I asked uh, the bar staff for a mimosa and she responded with a mocktail. I said, oh, no, mimosa. And she looked at me with a blank stare and just nodded and said, mm-hmm. And then I said, a beer. Uh, and I was a little bit worried. I was like, why oh, did you change your order rather than oh, telling her what a mimosa was? Oh, no, no, no. I did. I ordered the oh, mimosa and a beer. Like, oh, I got a couple of drinks. I yeah, see. <laughs> no, no. Oh. Um, and she's like, okay. So she got me the beer. And then I was just watching because I was like, I don't think you know what a mimosa is or you weren't sure anyway um she made my beer and then I watched her and she went up to another bar staff member and asked him discreetly what a mimosa was and he shrugged his shoulders and then pulled his phone out and they googled it oh my god <laughs> and then they made it together like I guess they were new though they, they were quite young um uh, but, but mimosas they... but I mean I had I have to think what's a mimosa when you say it yeah so it's, it's pretty old school it, yeah it's just champagne with a dash of orange juice I yeah. guess it is um yeah uh and so so they made it together and uh, 
thought it was actually pretty good teamwork at the time. Like, oh, I don't know. Um, but they didn't and they made it, which was good. Um, but I also ordered like a coffee. This is somewhere else. I ordered the coffee and then they've come out and they're like, um, full cream strong latte. And I said, oh, I've got a skinny flat white, half a sugar. And she goes, yep. Yeah, that's this one. I'm like, <gasps> I'm like I, and it was just really busy and I, I was like, um, and then I just took it and it absolutely wasn't what I'd asked for. It was exactly what she said it was in the first place. To be fair, it was actually a lot better than I thought it was going to be because I haven't had a full cream latte in a long time. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just, I was like, what I, balls I, just to be like, all right, I'm just going to, yep. I'm just going to go with this and go, yep. No, not even going, oh, it could be, yeah, oh yeah, sorry, I got it wrong. Just to go, oh yeah. No, Didn't even it. question. I love it. Just, just. Fake just absolutely just said, yeah, no, this is the one. And I and she put me on the spot and it was fast and it was quick and there were people around and I just took it and I went, oh, okay. And then I and then I just left. How brazen. I know. So brazen. How have you lied to like that? I know. And it was like, this is a lie. You know it's a lie. Yeah. I know it's a it's lie. It's almost sociopathic. Let's oh, live yeah. the lie. Here it is. <laughs> and you just go, yeah, okay, I'm going to agree with you. That okay. that's so, yeah. It's like, here's your frothy mimosa. Yeah. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. I, I, I said it to um, Abby and Abby's just like, why didn't you say something? I'm like, I can never say anything. Mm. <laughs> she would say it. She's like, oh, yeah, she, she would question it again and, and maybe take a sip and then go back and, and swap it. But I just can't. I, I, I wish I could, but I just can't. But I understand like, the stress. Like I used to work at the Rainbow in Fitzroy years ago for like mm. three months and um, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Remember the first time someone asked for a snake bite? It's like a, oh, yeah. the jug of whatever that gross stuff is. I didn't know what it was. I just made it up. So I thought, that, sorry, I thought a snake bite was Coca-Cola and a beer. And, no, oh. it's cider and raspberry. Right, okay. Oh, yeah. Raspberry. God, yeah. Yeah. yeah, see? Well, yeah, fire engine I thought was maybe Coca-Cola and oh. raspberry. Yeah. I used to make stuff up. And then the first time someone said, pour me a Guinness. And I didn't realise you were meant to kind of pour it and then let it stand and oh, all yes. of that. I just gave them this absolute... You should have been taught, <laughs> shouldn't you? You should have been. Oh, yeah. And I think that eventually someone did teach me, but I, I maybe I... I can't remember how I got the job. I don't know if I said I'd worked at a bar before or not, but um, <laughs> someone did eventually show me what to do. But I, I'm also not someone who likes to ask. Like, I get a bit embarrassed. So yeah. I was like, I'll just kind of give this a go. But I remember handing someone this thing that, like, could not even be described as a Guinness and then just... That'd be a nightmare. Us both standing there staring at each other, like <laughs> me thinking, are you going to go with this for mm. me or are you going to say this is not what you've done is not a Guinness? And mm. they didn't go with me. Oh, they didn't? No, yeah. they said, excuse me, can someone teach this bar girl how to pour a Guinness? Oh, and then I got taught how to... That's oh, fair enough, no. isn't it? It was absolutely fair enough. But Definitely. It's just I get so ashamed of not knowing things that I, yeah. you know, I just wanted to see if that person would live in the lie with me. Yeah. yeah. The um, mimosa, though, I, you know, because it's just champagne and orange. Orange, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, it's not really a cocktail, is it? It's just no, not at all. like it's something f- your parents would give you. Yeah, it yeah. feels like something your auntie would drink watching Princess Diana's funeral. <laughs> totally. <laughs> It's exactly, it's, that's exactly what I would do. Maybe a wedding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a, yeah. No. It's too soon. It's too soon. Yeah. Uh, um, but I go to cafes a lot that just don't have, um, you know, people choose to have different milks now. So they'll yeah. only have cow's milk, like full fat mm. cow's milk, although they won't have almond milk. And I just love the way, I, like, when they deliver you that information, it's so shocking. Like I'll say, can I have an almond latte? Only oat milk and cow's milk. 
and you're like, there's no, and I get really stressed. I'm like, okay, I'll just have cow's milk. Like I've gone from yeah. almond milk to cow's milk. How embarrassing. And I feel like they're trying to, I, I get it, like, but I feel like they're trying to embarrass you into thinking about why you're ordering that. Like why are you even ordering that almond latte? Yeah. You don't even need that, do that. you? But the confidence in which they deliver you that information, like, it's what your type of milk is so not needed in the world that I'm not even going to offer, offer you. An, it yeah, too. yeah. Nice. Yes, yeah. I know. Oh, it's so passive aggressive. I'm into it. Yeah. This must be happening for real. That must be the, the, the thinking, isn't it? I, it absolutely is. And I get it because I think, you know, almond milk, there's environmental issues and stuff with it. And so, I and there's so many different options for milk now that I think a lot of cafes are like, well, we'll choose two you can have an oat you can have a not you know a non-dairy and you can have a dairy and i'm not even going to bother with skim milk mm-hmm. and i i just love the confidence of it as well and it does it's made me question a lot of my life choices but in that moment i kind of shame spiral about everything like them just telling me they they do not stock that milk is like oh what even is life <laughs> yeah there was a with i'm not sure if this is related there was a, i have a family friend who was uh <laughs> at a tip and they showed their vaccine certificate, but it wasn't like recognised by the tip worker. Like they just didn't, I don't, I don't think I even think it was on paper or whatever. Oh. Anyway, so they kicked her out of the car and then her partner went into the tip. So she's just on the side of the road and the at tip. The tip. Oh my God. <laughs> Shame. Oh, but I love the confidence of that. Just going, no, you're not even coming into this tip. Yeah, exactly. No. It was, it was, but just the, the forthrightness and the, what a, what a low point in their life, just standing, standing outside a tip. The, with oh. this seagull. Oh. <laughs> Triple R. Oh. Arvind Ethan David is a writer, graphic novelist, producer of eight feature films and is behind the Tony and Grammy Award winning Broadway musical Jagged Little Pill, which opens in Melbourne at the Comedy Theatre next month and before its arrival to the city, the producer joins us now. Arvind, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Good morning. Now, you're presently in Sydney. I am. Because... I'm presently, I'm, I'm presently in bed, but I am also in Sydney. <laughs> yes, you, and you're there because, of course, Jagged Little Pill's showing. How's it going up there? It's great. We had our opening night last night, and I have to tell you, some, some people kept telling me that Australian audiences are, 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 are tough and they don't do standing ovations and they're very restrained emotionally. Well, I don't know who, I don't know who was in the building last night because there was crying there was wailing there was a there was two standing ovations and there was no emotional restraint Um, what do you think it is about the show that resonates the show is is obviously it's powered by the amazing music of Alanis and I think her songs have such deep resonance always but the story we're telling is is of a community that you know that goes through a difficult time and then comes um, comes together with, with with love and catharsis and rejuvenation, and I think that just sounds a lot like the world right now. <laughs> it sounds a lot like you know we've all been through a difficult time and we're all craving reconnection and emotional catharsis. And our show seems to do that for people, and that's kind of wonderful to see. Mm. As you're saying, it is all based around the music of Alana's Jagged Little Pill. It also features some new songs from her. Uh, how did her involvement, if people don't, not everyone knows the kind of background of how this this musical came to be, are you able to tell us how, you know, Alanis's relationship with this show came about? Absolutely. So, you know, my partner, my partners and I went to her when, when, when we had the idea 
And I remember the first meeting because we sort of went in and sort of quite, you know, you're meeting Alanis Morissette, which is, she's like the queen. And, you, and we went in and we said, um, so we're sure that, you know, you've been asked this many times. The album sold 35 million copies. It's been around. It's part of pop culture. Surely people have asked you this before. And she went, no, no one's ever asked me this. This is cool. Come and sit down. <laughs> and, 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 I think, and I think the thing is, you know, when people think about these songs, they sort of assume that they're autobiographical. You know, there's all the speculation about who you ought to know is about and all that stuff. And all that's fun. But what is also true is Alanis wrote some songs of amazing poetry and with really deep and wonderful themes, themes about truth and parenthood and uh, sexual power. And, and we said to her, we want to make a show about those themes. That's as sort of shocking and game-changing as your album was to the world. And she said, yeah, no, that, that I'm down for. And so she's been this wonderful sort of, uh, we, you know, we call her like the godmother or the goddess of the show. And we brought in Diablo Cody, who won an Oscar for Juno and is one of just the best screenwriters of her generation to write the story. And she and Alana sort of mind-melded. Uh, one of the happiest professional days of my life is when I got to introduce those two and just sat across the table and watched these two game-changing women start to craft this new story together. And, you know, that was about five, so six years ago now. It's, 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 been, a, it's been a process. Uh, and, of course, a process that then, you know, we got started on Broadway two years ago and uh, opened to, to, to sort of wonderful audiences. And then, of course, COVID came and the world changed and we've all been waiting to bring back Jagged into the world and it's so wonderful to bring it back here in Australia. Mm. It's presently still running on Broadway. I think it reopened in October when Broadway reopened. Do you, uh, how's it going there? And did you take an enormous financial hit because of... COVID and the, the closure of Broadway because, you know, we know so much through pop culture about what it's like to be a Broadway producer. <laughs> it, is, it, it, is, it, it is. It is not like it is in the movie. <laughs> um, I mean, it has been, look, it has been, uh, it has been an incredibly difficult two years for everyone and for those of us who are in live entertainment who take our meaning and our purpose by performing uh, and by putting on shows for audiences, of course, it's been miserable. Um, the financial hit, um, both, uh, both in Broadway and also here in Australia, where we were meant to open three months ago, uh, and, and, and obviously COVID caused lots of delays. So that has been difficult. I will say in both countries, the governments uh, have been very helpful and supportive and recognized the impact of the COVID restrictions on the performing arts industries. So we are, we are grateful to, 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 to the governments of Australia and New South Wales and, and, and for that. But I will also say that really it's a, the, the people who took the hardest hit were the actors. You know, for, for all these actors, particularly these young actors, you know, we have here in Australia eight members of our cast, the 23 people in our cast, eight of them are making their professional debuts. Uh, it, our, our show is a show about young people. More than half the cast is under 25 years old. And so for these young people to have their lives paused before they, their professional lives paused before they've barely begun uh, has been enormously difficult. And then to rehearse a show 
partly through Zoom with half of, half of us. You know, I turned up here to do the final days of rehearsal uh, and literally on my way to the airport, the quarantine rules changed and I had to spend 72 hours in this lovely hotel room. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm like zooming in to the dress rehearsal, <laughs> trying to watch it through a tiny screen and give notes. And so it's been very difficult uh, for everybody. And it's a sort of miracle that we've put on any sort of show, let alone one, and, you know, uh, I'm obviously a little biased, but as wonderful as this one seems to have turned out, as the audiences seem to be telling us it is. Can you run us through the Australian cast and what it is about them that impresses you? Um, so our, uh, our, our, our leads are the wonderful Natalie Bassingwaite and Tim Jaxel, uh, Mags McKenna, um, uh, Aidan and Liam Head uh, are our leads. Um, and I, I have to tell you, to do this show, you have to be able to sing the music of Alanis Morissette, which is impossible. You, you basically need a three-octave three range uh, to, to do it. It's impossible. You have to be able to do the dialogue of Diablo Cody, which is impossible because it's incredibly funny, witty, uh, rhythmic dialogue. And you have to be able to do the dance of our genius choreographer, uh, Sidi Labi Cherokee, who is Beyonce's choreographer, amongst many other things. And his dance is stunning and impossible. So to have found a company who can do all three of those impossible things at once and do them to an amazing level is, is really a tribute to the, to the depth of talent that, that you have here in Australia. Because a lot of these people, as I've said, are young and we're hiring fresh out of drama school, in some cases fresh out of high school. And uh, I'll give an example on Sunday was our, you know, our two-show day. We had a matinee and an evening show on Sunday. And for like half the company, um, this was the first time in their lives they had done two shows in one day. Mm-hmm. And it was, and, you know, and they were so wonderful. They found such, such, such stuff. So it is, it, it is a wonderful cast. They really, and they've become, through this difficult process, through being, you know, shut down and having to rehearse remotely and all of this, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a, difficult uh, job but they've come together so joyously and it was really wonderful we had our opening night last night and to be uh, here in Sydney and to be able to celebrate with them the, all their hard work and, and how great it turned out was very uh, well you could hear from my voice there was a lot of was <laughs> yes a lot of, thank you I can't again, believe we dragged us. you up after <laughs> open, opening night I feel <laughs> <Totally>. bad <laughs> <laughs> yes well I, I, I will tell you what I am um, when I woke up and I, I turned on uh, your, your show to listen to it, and my God, you guys play some wonderful music. I didn't want you to stop. I was like, no, don't interview me. Just keep playing music. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shucks. Thank you. Uh, what is your favourite number from the show? Oh, that's really tricky. You, you know, you can't, uh, you, you have to try and love all your children equally. <laughs> but I will say, but I will say there is a moment, uh, there is a moment in the show that people, uh, will we'll have been talking about, and that's when Mags McKenna sings You Ought to Know, and You Ought to Know is obviously an iconic um, torch song, you know, it's a song of unrequited or betrayed love, it's a song of a, of a lover scorned, uh, but I'll tell you, once you see Mags do it in the theatre, you will never think about the speculation about which sitcom star it may or may not be about, all you will know is that it's it's a song that 
sense of something free in any of us who have ever felt unseen or ever had an unhappy or uh, love affair, which is all of us. <laughs> and so uh, I, would, I would say watch out for that moment. All right. Well, Jagged Little Pill, the musical, opens at the Comedy Theatre on the 2nd of January. Bookings and information can be found at jaggedmusical.com. And we've been fortunate to drag almost out of bed. <laughs> uh, producer of Jagged Little Pill, Arvin Ethan David, thanks so very much. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Go back and play some more great music. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) That's right. Triple R. So we went to see a show last night. When I say we, I mean the Breakfasters, Smithy, Daniel and myself, because five days a week, three hours in the morning isn't enough. So I thought we'd hang out a little more. hanging out with you guys after hours as well. Uh, so we went to the Malthouse Theatre, the outdoor stage there. Um, and one thing that happened during the night that um, was quite entertaining was they went into the crowd for crowd participation. Uh, and Daniel, you were thrown into the show and didn't skip a beat. You were just like into it straight away. I was so impressed. I like, was so impressed too. Yeah. So like you're saying, we're the outdoor stage and there was a moment where um, a spotlight just marks an audience member um, and they're kind of identified as this character, this character in the yeah. play. And Daniel, I, I almost thought you were a plant. That you, I know. You responded so well. <laughs> Just jumped straight up, like gave a little bit back, improvised. You did. You... Look, thanks, guys. Yeah, you know. I wouldn't have done that. I was terrified. When the spotlight arrived, oh, me I was like, too. far out. I'm so happy that's slightly more on Daniel than me. Yeah. Well, no one wants to see uh, unwilling, like in for yeah. a penny, in for a goddamn pound. True. Yeah. Like, for God's sake. But, and, but also not, you know. Overstaying your welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. You yeah. don't want to make it about you too mm. much. Yeah, That's right. Nah, yeah. Have we established it. what we were watching? No. No. Uh, Ash Flanders' SS Metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Very funny. Very funny. Oh, my funny. God, it was so good. We interviewed Ash a couple of weeks ago and he was so good in interview. The interview was so funny that it was like the show has to be good. Oh, yeah, You're going to talk to someone like you're just a funny human being and this yeah. is going to be good. And then um, the show was great. Yeah. And also, okay, so the outdoor stage, love the idea. The, what got us over the line was because we were, we were like, oh, this show will be great. And um, I think that maybe they say you can drink rosé and eat pizza uh, in the sun. And we and the three of us were like, ooh, that got us over the line. That sounds amazing. And then yesterday was like minus 100 degrees. <laughs> So it wasn't quite the subbery evening in the forecourt of the Malthouse Theatre that we, th- we were expecting. Um, Daniel didn't even bring a jacket. Which no, was... you just had like a blazer, didn't you? Yeah, but I was so busy and sweating, audience participating. It yeah. didn't yeah. matter. Like I was didn't just, even notice. Yeah, yeah, I was like, so, you know, I was getting so much. Um, but, yeah, like a wild show, very surreal. T- yeah. Touch of Dimbola. I'm not sure if anyone's seen that. I don't know very that But it's, yeah. it's, you know, like it's a, there's a stage show going on. You are an audience. You know, it's it's meta in that example. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and it kind of twists a little bit. Like I thought at first it was just going to be this – kind of straight-up cabaret singing thing, uh, which is what it kind of presents itself as early on, and yeah. then it just t- kind of turns on its head and becomes something um, something else altogether. But it is really fun. It's, yeah. a, it's a really fun show. Go and see it if you can. Yeah. And yeah. Go and sit outdoors and drink the rosé that I didn't drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I'm like you, Smithy, though. When the spotlight did come, I was like, oh, God, no, please, no. I'm not one to – if I go and see a show, I just want to watch a show and I, I'm probably not a, a person that you would want to try to include because I really? might be – Really? It surprises me. And you know what? And I think, like, I've been to shows with friends and whenever they're like, someone in the audience or everyone will go to push me, I'm like, uh, like absolutely not. If I'm performing, absolutely. But if I'm not, I'm just like, 
God, I just want to watch a show. I do not want to be involved. Why you like all. want to take? This is someone. You, I mean, you're a person who gets told to take it down from a ten to a one. I know. And I would always, I'd always be like, I'm safe because Bobby's here. Oh she'll, no, she'll jump up. God, no, absolutely not. Thank God Daniel was there to yeah. to take the reins. I was the benefactor, so I was responsible for the, sh- the whole shit storm. You were, yeah, yeah. You so were. In, in the play, you, you, I was a villain. You were actually a villain. <laughs> yeah, you were given you the role of villain. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, but I was really happy about it. And I had my beer. But you yeah. know what? I kept thinking the whole time after you participated, it was like, Jesus, don't I just I didn't want it to keep happening all night as well. Right. Yeah. I didn't want now because because you you'd given a little bit of you know you'd given a bit of butter or whatever the hell you say. Yeah. yeah I was like, Oh no, I hope they just don't keep coming back here for him. Yeah. Well did you see Geraldine Quinn in the uh in the audience as well? She was uh, Linda. Yes. Yeah, and like I'm amazing performer, but she was I like how I think I would be. She was like, Oh please no, absolutely not. But she kind of went into it a little bit. Um one of my mates came to a comedy show and she oh, I wasn't performing, we were all watching and the comedian has said, We want to get someone up on stage and she just looked for the person who did not want to be up on stage and that was my friend who was just looking everywhere but her and she got her on stage um, and she was doing like kind of acrobats with it. It's like she picked her up and did all this different stuff. Everyone in the crowd thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, my friend was okay about it. She, she kind of warmed to it at the end uh, but she said she's never going to another show again. Like <laughs> she's like, oh, I'm just, I think we weren't the front row but we were close to the front. But that really deterred her. She she didn't enjoy it much at all. Although, you know, years ago when I first started doing stand-up, I was performing in this room and uh, my dad came along and the MC was was doing his stuff and no one was laughing at anything. And he goes, oh, you know, this is a lot harder than it looks up here. Who wants to give it a go? You. You want to give it a go? And pointed at my dad. And I was like, oh, my God, please. And my dad goes, all right. And I went, oh, no. Jesus Christ. And he handed the microphone to my dad. Oh, my God. And I was just like, I wanted to get out of there. I was just like, oh, my God, Dad, what are you doing? Anyway, and everyone cheered. And then Dad got on stage. And I, I can't remember what he said. He just told us an old joke that went for two minutes. It was daggy, but it was surprisingly funny. And everyone laughed and cheered. And then Dad, yeah, went off stage. And that was more terrifying than ever having to perform myself. Seeing my dad get up and jump on I think stage. this explains why Mr. Become a Texas constantly during the show. <laughs> yeah. Like he's just always trying to weasel his way he's into her body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of the spotlight, Bobby. <laughs> it's my time to shine. When yes. when does you and your dad's sitcom come out? That's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Bloody hell. I know we spend a lot of time together, don't we? <laughs> Triple R. Join this Friday by comedian Funny Bugger and ensemble member of Nine Goes Hit Comedy Metrosexual, Irvi Majumda. Hey, Irvi. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. Saw the show last night. Oh, you did? Yeah, That's it was so fun. Awesome. Oh, great. Yeah, um, I actually haven't had a chance to watch any episodes oh, yet. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, you'll have to take my word for it. Yeah, and I'm like, everyone's like, yeah, it's great. I'm like, yeah, no, totally. Um, no. <laughs> That's great. We did a um, we did a like a little panel at Acme talking about it last night. So um, oh. I, yeah, I can't wait to watch it. Uh, sexual chemistry with Ryan Shelton's character. Oh, you think there is some? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's meant to be. We we're trying. I think um, yeah, this this season 
that develops more. Um, but yeah, it was fun. I did a couple of acting classes at Brave Studios near where I live. And um, yeah, the actor teacher is really good at kind of breaking down the character and doing all that. So yeah, it was a lot of fun playing around with him on set as well. Yeah. Well, it's working. You two okay. really hit it off. Yeah, anyway, it's fun. Well, take oh, this conversation. Cool, thank you. Uh, <laughs> what, what else is going on in your world? Um, what is it? Like, it just feels like it's sort of, you guys feel rinsed, but it's just, um, I feel like coming out of lockdown has been really great, very grateful for all the gigs and just to be out. Um, but yeah, it just feels like all the catch-ups, everything's just like, um, exhausting. Are you feeling that too? Yes. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It feels like a lot, but then I also feel like it's my fault because I have really bad FOMO and I've had that like my whole life. You know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> We're not a bunch of chuggies. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you live under a rock. No, yeah, it's um yeah, fear of missing out for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, I feel like I've got I've had it my whole life and I know that it's a problem, so it just kind of means I'm like never really present, um, but too scared to go home. <laughs> That is the best definition of FOMO I've ever heard. Never really present but too scared to go home. Yeah, it's like I feel like I just get really, yeah, if I'm not invited to something, it ruins my life. But, um, <laughs> like, if I feel like if people, if someone called me, I was thinking about the other day, like if someone called me and said your two best friends have died in a car crash, I feel like my first thought would be why the fuck wasn't I invited? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's not great. <laughs> that's probably just means I'm like never at peace, really. Um, but yeah, that's been going on. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you feel like you've got that? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, that was a good thing about pandemic. There was nowhere to go. Yeah, there's nowhere to get nothing to do. I'm like a lazy person, FOMO. So I get FOMO, but mm. I go. Like, say I'm at Meredith and everyone's like, I'm going to stay on the dance floor at 6 a.m. I go, oh, my oh. God, I'm going to sleep. So I go to sleep with some fries and then I'm really happy with my decision. But then I have anxiety attacks the whole next day because I've missed out on everything. <laughs> so I get post-FOMO, but I'm too yeah. lazy in the moment to to mm-hmm. follow through. Yeah, that's a really, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I'll just stay out, um, but, yeah, just never really enjoy. I mean, I'm always sort of enjoying myself, but it's never at, like, 100%. <laughs> Um, Gee, so Sarah going to bed with chips, every, giving everyone else FOMO. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Everyone else wants to yeah. do that. You're not a party every, to 4 yeah. a.m. Everyone wants to be brave like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're my hero. They're not loaded fries, are they? Yeah, they are loaded. Yeah, I get, um, yeah. Oh, you get the special sauce. <sighs> are you talking about the Hare Krishna tent where they have, like, the balls and then you can I'm um, not. I'm, I do love the Hare Krishna tent, but no, I'm talking about beatbox burgers, um, fries <laughs> with the special sauce that you take, and then you wake up with the special sauce everywhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds now. so good. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I've also been thinking a bit about um, just like in my high school, we were just like really multicultural, um, and for some reason that just meant that we just called each other like it was like fresh off the boat, and I was like a curry. I don't know if you've heard of that term before, um, but yeah, it was like. Um, just something that was normal in high school and I had to get out of that habit like when I left high school because it's not okay if you call someone like fresh off the boat or a curry these days. <laughs> um, but I feel like we did it affectionately to each other and there was actually a moment where we, um, the teachers at my school were like, you're not allowed to 
call each other curries anymore and then we had like a revolution <laughs> um, <laughs> because they were like stop calling each other curries on Flinders Street Station and it's not okay um, and then we were like we're allowed to do that like we're Indian and um, like how dare you tell us what to call each other and then they backed down and we were just like okay you're a hot curry you're a mild curry and it's just it was <laughs> I was a hot curry, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but same with fresh off the boat, and I feel like if anyone white or like, because I feel like an ex-boyfriend one time um, was like, yeah, if he's just gone to hang out with her fob friends, um, and that was like a hate, it was it felt like a hate crime. So it's like <laughs> it's not okay if anyone that's not Indian says it. Um, but yeah, I was thinking back to this like t- I I was only on Tinder for like you know maybe two months or something, um, sad like that. But I once was on this Tinder date. And I was trying to explain what fresh off the boat meant to the guy. Um, and he, th- he thought I was, like, literally talking about being fresh off the boat. So then I was like, yeah, I just got off at St Kilda Beach and um, walked, like, me and my family walked all the way to Glen Waverley and that's where we live now. <laughs> oh um, and he was like, oh, was really? Wow, I love St Kilda. That's so cool. <laughs> um, and we've been dating ever since. <laughs> No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I won't say that on air, but yeah, just like a funny memory that I had. <laughs> uh, hanging out with their fob friends. So is is mm-hmm. that uh, is Jonathan? Um, <laughs> no, I don't he, he wasn't the one who said it. <laughs> okay. He's like, make sure they don't think it's me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's rule that out. Um, uh, what's your gig situation? Um, there's heaps going on. So um, I'm preparing for my first solo show next year. Um, and that's going to be, it's called Irvy Went to an All Girls School. And it's at, um, it's uh, doing it at Adelaide and Melbourne. Cool. Um, and yeah, there's heaps of gigs on next week. There's Easy Comedy just near, um, near Triple R, actually. That's at Easy concert town hall mm-hmm. um and yeah just uh online on my socials like instagram and facebook and, I post gigs all the and time. when's metrosexual on with geraldine hickey yeah so that was on last night so you can still watch it on um you can watch all the episodes on um nine now online mm-hmm. um but yeah it premiered on channel nine last week and yesterday night beautiful Evie majumda thanks heaps thank you so much triple r You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>